I see Play Hard Sports being as much an international company than it is um, an Australian customer-based company. Uh, we have a lot of prospects in Europe. Uh, over the next few years, uh, we'll be building on that, uh, and it gives us an opportunity to do something in volume, which we haven't had in the past. People all around the world love sport. From playing ball in the backyard through to the Olympic and Paralympic podiums, the majority of the world's population play, watch and enjoy sport. Steve Dart from Play Hard Sports gives listeners the chance to meet people from across the world of entertainment, sports and business who are affecting the way international sport is unfolding. So, with the combination of technology, passion and great people wanting to tell their story, it gives rise to Play Hard Sports Behind the Games podcast. Well, here we are. The Gold Coast has opened up with a bit of a downpour this morning, but we're at the beautiful headquarters of Play Hard Sports with Trevor Bowman, owner-manager of Ring PTY, trading as Play Hard Sports Equipment. Good morning, Trevor. How are you? Excellent. Thanks, Steve. Wonderful. Play Hard Sports Equipment recently placed the IAAF accredited Thor 10 hammer discus cage at the newly refurbished Sports Supercentre in Runaway Bay, Queensland, the official training venue for the Commonwealth Games in 2018. I spoke to Brendan Flynn yesterday, the director of the Super Centre, and he was thrilled with the new superstructure asset that appears outside of his office every day. How do you feel about that? Absolutely great, to be honest. It's um, to, to get such a good comment from a high-profile pro, high, high uh, manager, um, it's really good to hear. Fantastic. Really All right, this is about you, so let's go back to those early years. You were born and lived in Adelaide for 20 years. Tell me about that period of your day. Uh, yes, we lived in the northern suburbs of Adelaide. Uh, parents uh, were probably on the poor side of things. Um, we, In my early days, uh, my family went up to Darwin for a one-week holiday and uh, we came back five years later uh, and then started school in uh, Adelaide and then I left probably in my early 20s. So... Uh, yeah, basically went through to high school, uh, studied photography for three years at TAFE and uh, I met a girl from Sydney and uh, that's why I ended up leaving. <laughs> All right, let's get into that a bit later. Okay, so you're academic. How were you? You're a good kid at school or were you just mainly uh, a bit of a daydreamer out thinking about uh, maybe inventing things? How were you with the academic years? Um, struggled, to be honest. Uh, went, went through the, the higher grades uh, through my year, uh, my brother was a year and a half ahead of me, and I always felt as I was trying to catch up to him all the time. So he he was the academic, I was more the um, dreamer, as you put it, which is probably a good description of it. Uh, but no, I, you know, school wasn't a great time for me, um, but managed to get through it. And uh, yeah, photography was my passion, and that was really where my head head was in those days. It's funny, um, I do look at a lot of entrepreneurs and um, you know, when they're into the school system was always built for, you know, getting people through that system and then into employment but as entrepreneurials and daydreamers, you know, when they change the world and they just got a different outlook at such a young age and I think that's what you probably were alluding to. Uh, I think so. Um, as I said, photography was my main gig then. That, that, that was all I wanted to do. Didn't want to do anything else. Uh, unfortunately, 
you've got to earn a living and you, you get married and all these sorts of things and you tend to gravitate to where you can get the money in and photography wasn't the breadwinner at the time. Sure. So, uh, you did a bit of travelling with your photography? Uh, did a little bit of travelling. I, I started off, uh, I worked for the um, Adelaide Waterworks and uh, my father at the time also worked for the Waterworks. He was actually a staff car driver. So uh, when the photographic unit needed to go out and photograph a, a project like the um, Little Para Dam or the uh, Bolivar Water Treatment Plant, um, we'd ring up for a staff car to come and take us out there and half the time it was me, your man. So wow. that, that was a good, it was good there for a while, yeah. Great story. Okay, so... You had a bit of troubled uh, times um, around about, you said you were a bit down and out around about the age of 32. What was that time like? Um, that was at a time where my first marriage uh, broke up. Um, and at the time I had we had uh, two kids, um, six and four. And uh, things just, the wheels just sort of basically fell off. So uh, uh, after a fairly short period, uh, I was unemployed. Um, Car had broken down, um, I was evicted from the unit I was renting and it was just sort of a low point in life and you sort of you know, got to a point where uh, you could say that you know people could take, take whatever they like off me, yeah. take my clothes, take my money, whatever you like, but there's, yep. you, I think you always find something in yourself that people can't take away yep. and that sort of spurs you on so that was that was uh, probably about a year and a half before I met my current wife Red yep. Miller yep. and um, after I met her um, things started to move forward she actually uh, provided me with a new wardrobe so I was very happy about that wow that's fantastic <laughs> you know they always say you've got to have your down moments to know where you're uh, when you hit the top so obviously you moved into play hard sports equipment that was around about 1993. Take me through that early time. Um, okay. Uh, <clears throat> that was shortly after um, Red Miller and I got married. Um, I secured a job with Osram, uh, the lighting company, and I was a product manager for their entertainment lighting. And uh, <clears throat> I had also joined a local basketball club uh, playing basketball in the veterans comp. And I used to go to schools at weekends to practice. And I'd find that the rings were either bent or missing. Uh, so I don't really know why to this day, but I thought I'd do something about it. So I ended up designing a spring tension ring, and the spring tension ring was basically modelled off a bulldog clip, of all things. And um, being ignorant of how everyone else in the world does spring tension rings, uh, I turned out to do it different, and that's basically where it all started. Okay. Your chance meeting with the Joe Viglione. Tell me about that. Uh, he was a uh, colourful character, an Italian, and he was a member of the New South Wales Inventors Association. So he'd started a company called Oztent, and he'd invented a 30-second camping tent, which was a, a tent with an aluminium frame. So it took 30 seconds to take his tent out of the bag and erect it, and he was exhibiting that at the National Sporting Goods Exhibition in Chicago in I think it was 94 or 95, around about that time. So he said to me, give me a basketball ring, I'll take it over there and uh, exhibit it. And then thought about it for a while and then thought, no, I'll have to go too because he won't have time to show my ring. He'll be putting his tent up and down all day. So went to the exhibition, uh, had a little stand there. Uh, on the last day of the exhibition, I wondered what the heck I was doing there. I'd spent five grand. Everyone's saying, yeah, very nice, but nothing. I didn't really know what I was supposed to be 
achieving sure. while I was there. And anyway, in the last day, a guy came up to me and said, look, go over to the other halls where all the other basketball manufacturers are and talk to them. So I ended up uh, doing that. One of them invited me to their factory the day after the exhibition. So I took the ring around and showed the um, head of research and development. In a, in a <coughs> uh, plastic bag, I Yeah, it was in a paper bag. Yeah, so this was Porter Athletic, which is the probably the world's biggest manufacturer of um, sports equipment, and uh, ended up showing him. Spent about fifteen minutes in his office, and he loved it from when he first saw it. So the end of that story is: is six months later, we'd come to a licensing agreement, and they, um, which allowed them to manufacture it over a five-year period. And then they extended that for another five-year period after that. Fantastic that you actually took that move to actually go yourself rather than have someone else try to sell your product for you. Yeah, well, actually, probably the irony of it is um, Joe didn't do any deals on his tent, and I did. So, wow. so we keep talking about there every now and again. So, um, and then at, then when we actually signed the agreement, uh, Porter flew me over to Chicago. They had a stretch limo waiting at the airport for me, put me up in a hotel, um, gave me a factory tour, so I spent a whole, whole day, which was a huge insight into what our business could achieve or, and, and how to do it. And then uh, at the end of that day, they took me down to see uh, Chicago Bulls playing the Golden State Warriors. Wow. With Scotty Pippen, Michael Jordan, Luke Longley. It was in their five-year reign, so that was a that, – that was – for me, that was huge. That was just a, you know – A great time. <laughs> All right, so explain to the <laughs> listeners – how the ring was so different in that time to anything that was on the market? Okay, the, the the spring part of the ring that we made was made from the leaf string of a leaf spring of a truck. So it was basically a flat, wide spring, and it was curved something similar to a bulldog clip. All manufacturers worldwide use coil springs, and the problem with coil springs is that when they compress, or when they reach their maximum compression, they then become solid. So when you hang on the ring, it'll collapse down. It will then hit its maximum compression, and that's probably what, that's generally why glass backboards shatter because when that comes down, it then sends that vibration through to the glass, and then it shatters the glass. So this particular one doesn't have any pivot joints, doesn't have any axle joints, so it won't uh, rust or seize up in the snow. So Porter liked that, so it's low maintenance, and they put it into their home market so it was a really it was a top end home basketball unit so that's that's really how how it um come about and how was the pull through in sales for how many units they sold do you know that well um <clears throat> probably over a 10 year period uh they were probably selling around 2000 units a year and uh, they'd then pay us a royalty per quarter for those units um I think we were wealthier when Joe and I were sitting at the bar in the hotel discussing how many we could fit into a container than what actually turned out to be reality, but it was a good, sure. good story. Good we're, we're millionaires over that bar. Wonderful. So, yeah. yeah, dreams, dreams yeah. come reality. Um, play, play hard sports now. Where is it in its journey? Uh, Revitalised, to be honest. Uh, probably, I would say, two years ago... Um, we sort of lost a bit of direction. Um, the economy wasn't very good. Regular customers were doing anything up to a third of what they used to do. So we were looking at you know, where where our next new customers are coming from, you know, are our existing customers going to build up. So 
we were working with um, Bill Stack, uh, an action coach back then, and he suggested to us that um, our sites are too narrow. Uh, we're focusing on Australia, and really what we have uh, is a is a global customer base. So he said, start thinking about that, and that's really what we've done. So what we wanted to do was to investigate overseas work to to um, I guess soften the up and downs of the Australian market because most of our money really comes from government spending. So if the government's not spending money, our work dries up. So we wanted a bit of immunity from that situation. Sure thing. Today, tomorrow and always, you want to be at the forefront of innovation and inspiring your team to consistently be evolving and pushing the envelope of excellence. Tell me about the necessity for change in equipment. Uh, one one of the necessities is I don't want to come to work and do the same thing every day. There's got, always got to be something new on the horizon, something new we're developing. Um, I think that's really why I want to be in business. So really to to come up with new things, you need to... You need to have a point of difference between your customers. And there was a period in Australia, probably three, four years ago, where, as an example, uh, asphalting people were coming into the into the um, tennis court building industry. So tennis court builders, there wasn't a lot of work around, so they all of a sudden had twice the amount of people competing for their jobs. So in order to 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 maintain your business, you need a point of difference, and it's no different from us we we manufacture things as other competitors we have here so what do we have that's any different from our competitors apart from perhaps a better service or a better phone manner or we you know we dress better sure yeah, it's got to be something yep and um we realized that we had a few key products uh, one of them is our raptor basketball towers a side swing basketball tower uh, at the time and including us we were all making two pole three pole systems and we then decided to change that to make it easier to manufacture, uh, cheaper for the installer. So we ended up coming up with a single pole thing. So that then set us apart from our opposition. So we then thought this is where our future lies. So we then looking at, we then deliberately started looking for point of difference in the way we could do things differently that gives us an edge against our competitors. Yeah, well said. You manufacture equipment for in-stadium, club level and recreational sporting equipment such as tennis, basketball, Rugby, AFL, athletics, soccer, futsal, hockey, badminton, cricket, netball and volleyball. I see Play Hard Sports solving inefficiencies in sports equipment. Is that how you see it? Uh, that's pretty much what you're looking for when you're designing something. So you, you want to look at what are the niggles with current stuff and then you want to eliminate those niggles. So when I try to design things... Um, I don't really want to look so much at what other people are doing because that can influence you. What you need to do is you need to go back to the rule book, find out what the rules of the thing has to be in the first place, and then talk to uh, perhaps officials like we do in in athletics. So we talk to the officials there and they say, oh, this is a problem, that's a problem, whatever. So you then try to solve that because you then think you're going to have an advantage over your competitor. So you want to give them something that's a bit better than what's currently available. So a lot of people that design things, they look at something else, they will do a tweak of it, but what they don't realise is they're also copying the faults with the thing and they don't know what those faults are because they haven't designed it, so they haven't spent the thinking time in it to work out what's good and what's bad about it. They just copy it and give the same thing. Fantastic. Some of your larger asset placements have been in Sydney, Olympic Park, Rabina Seabus Stadium on the Gold Coast, Queensland Tennis Centre and the Runway Bay Sports Centre, as we mentioned before. 
tell me some of those memorable um, placements and uh, anything happening through those times. We obviously you had the um, Sydney Olympic Games. You had some hockey goal placements there. That was pretty outstanding. Tell me about some of those things. Uh, we <clears throat> yes, we did. We had um, back when the Sydney Olympics um, was on. Uh, the U.S. funded a new track build in uh, Bankstown. So we got our uh, hammer cage put into there, plus some, some other equipment. We put a discus cage in. Uh, I think there were some hockey goals. So the U.S. used that as a training venue. So while we didn't get um, equipment directly into venues that were used in the Olympics, it's all the tr- training facilities that, that need to support all the teams coming over that's where the work was so that was sort of the start of it and uh but things things like that aren't your normal daily bread your normal daily bread is your is your repeat customers your court builders your track builders um you know people who are building gymnasiums that, that's where your, the bread and butter is and things like the commonwealth games and the the in melbourne and also the ones coming up here uh in a way they're cream and they're venues that would give you a profile. So if you get your gear into some of those, it'll give you a high profile. Like the Runaway Bay, uh, putting our cage in the Runaway Bay, for example, is probably the highest profile track uh, here on the Gold Coast. And to have it in there on, on you know, showcasing uh, the latest innovation in a brand new track, that's where you'll get your, your notoriety and um, uh, interest for future work. Sure, and also building brand equity is a major play. As well as PlayHard Sports providing premium products, you're moving the needle with R&D in full swing with the introduction of smart equipment innovation on cutting-edge media, as we see. What's your thoughts on the new program we're developing now called Behind the Games Podcast, and what's your thoughts on it? Uh, well, I must say, Steve, it's a bit of a revelation to us. Um, Rad and I have been pretty poor on the sales and marketing uh, side of things, and, and what really what you're, you're bringing to the table here is is something beyond our expectations and it's a it's a fantastic way of um, educating the public um, educating other people within the industry and um, also sharing other people's stories um, like mine I guess um, so that we all have a common uh, have a common thread and uh, I, I think this is just going to be a, a great legacy for the future, uh, particularly leading up to the games. A lot of the people that are that are involved in uh, building venues, organising it all, there's some really great stories to have, have there and to be able to capture that is going to be fantastic. Yeah, that's great. Uh, you've attended quite a few international trade shows of late. Uh, mention them. Uh, we attended the FSB um, Sports Expo in Cologne in October last year. And that was the first overseas uh, exhibition we attended. And uh, our aim at that was to, to show a model of the uh, our hammer cage, uh, to show our tennis posts and our basketball ring. So our uh, expectation from that was basically to gauge what international um interest there, there might be for us and that became a bit overwhelming we ended up coming out with uh, 24 key um uh, track builders and equipment procurement people from around the world and there was fairly high interest there so um we've already sold our tennis posts into the first project which come from that exhibition last october 
and that was for the um, the, the uh, Sultan Quibu Sports Complex in Oman is being upgraded. So uh, our tennis posts have gone into to that. So we're looking forward for photos when that one's finished. Uh, we then went to the US uh, in Phoenix in December, and that was for the American Sports Builders Conference. Uh, so we had a stand there and the same story, wanted to show our hammer cages. We were hoping to get one or two track builders on side who we could then uh, send the, send our cages to. And similar with the tennis place, we were hoping to get a few court builders on side. Um, <clears throat> a company in the US approached us at that exhibition, uh, which was Gill Athletic, and they instantly loved the model uh, that we had on display there. And they said that they wanted us. That they wanted to make our cages. So here we are, um, six months after that, and a few days ago, we've just signed a licensing agreement, and Gill will manufacture and distribute that in North America for the next twenty years. That's absolutely fantastic. You've actually been in uh, dialogue with Gill Athletics. Who you've been speaking to, and how's that outcome been over the last couple of weeks? Uh, we've been talking to uh, David Hodge, who is the uh, CEO. And uh, he is the, through his company, Latania, um, they operate the uh, Gill Athletic business and then they also operate the Porter Athletic business. So he's got two companies operating in a, in a very big factory in Champaign, just south of Chicago. Uh, and we've also been talking to uh, David Dixon, which is their national marketing manager. So David Dixon introduced us to David Hodge and... Um, it then took on from there. From then, you know, they all they're all very excited about the new design, the new concept, uh, because there's nothing nothing really has happened with hammer cage design in the in the last thirty years. So this is the only real substantial change there's been, and they see it as a huge point of difference from other suppliers in the US. So that's why I think they want the cage. So they're then expecting new customers to come to them that wouldn't normally come to them. All right, explain that point of difference that's making this asset such a worldwide phenomenon. Okay, the um, the main differences between this particular cage and other models, including our old models, is that it, it uses less poles, uh, so therefore it is it uses less concrete, it's less time-consuming to install, and you don't need a crane to install it. So we provide a winch with it, so you can install this thing without a winch. So all of that is a cost-saving. Uh, the other aspect to it is because of the reduced amount of poles and and the extra spacing between the net and the poles, the nets are le- least likely to get damaged. So from a venue operator, he, he wants less maintenance, which is less net repairs, um, he wants to leave. He wants athletes to be able to train in there all the time. Current cages have got very low wind ratings. In fact, most manufacturers recommend lowering the net when it's not in use. And and to me, to do that is like spending a you having an expensive piece of equipment laying on the ground. It's absolutely useless. So if you're buying that, spending that sort of money, you want it usable all the time, 24-7. Absolutely. So you originally had a really great asset in a hammer throw cage and you changed the design. What was the reason you changed it? Uh, Dennis Wilson from Athletics Australia came to us uh, probably about two and a half years ago now and said that IAAF had approved a new cage size, which was basically about 2.8 metres shorter than the current IAAF cage. And the idea of that was to to make cages more affordable for 
local clubs, etc., to be able to have a cage in there. So we thought, okay, well, if they're trying to reduce the cost of cages, what can we do to reduce our costs? And that's how the design really came about. So we were looking at you know, less galvanising costs, less steel. Um, you know, if we want to use less poles, what do we do? And that's pretty much how we this design evolved. So our first version of this uh, isn't how it currently is, uh, but it's, it's been evolving over the last two years. So the model we now have is probably getting getting towards the, the premium model. I believe that Jared Hill from Sports Eng recently did a really wonderful profile on LinkedIn regarding the future of hammer cages. Did you see it and what did you think? Uh, yeah, he seems to be a bit of a fan, to be honest. Um, I, uh, I contact, contacted him some time ago uh, because I, I'd heard that he was the main player in designing tracks around Australia and I asked him about our cage, about how, how to get our cage specified into jobs. And his comment was, look, I don't specify products. But he said, in your case, I don't mind doing it. And I think that's because of the benefits that, that this new design brings to the clubs and venues. So since then, uh, you've contacted him and you've been able to do a podcast with him. You've, you've, uh, and he's now, honestly, a raving fan of, of, our, uh, of our cages, which is great. Well, actually, I'll correct you. We did a video testimony, which was fantastic. <laughs> I'm still to do a podcast with him, and I believe he's more than happy to do that, hopefully, at the National Sports Convention in June. Okay, 2018 Commonwealth Games is only 18 months away. How much do you really want to see your uniquely designed Play Hard Sports Tour 10 Hammer Cage in the main arena? And why does it deserve to have that privilege? The cage is unique in the world in its design. And um, to showcase something from down under on a global scale uh, would be absolutely magic. And uh, I think um, generally the way these the games are funded... Uh, a company generally gets the, the contract to build the track, etc., and supply all the equipment. And what our aim would be is to go through Athletics Australia and try to get the cage part of that contract subtracted from it and the cage being a separate um, contract to supply and install. So in doing that... Um, we can then get our cage in because generally the track builder would then bring their cage in. So that, that could well be from Europe or it might be US uh, to do that. So, um, uh, yeah, we're, we're certainly going to put a drive in there because that's on television. Millions of people see it and it's just a great thing to get Australia out there as leaders in, uh, in new design. And Australia's got a lot of things. For the population that we have... Yep. We overachieve for sure, and for such a marquee um, uh, program like the Commonwealth and Olympic Games, you always need best in class athletes and best in class equipment. So let's hope that that moves forward. What's it like working with prestigious trade partners like Polytan, Grass Sports, William Lowndes, and Dynamic Sports Facilities? What's it like to come up and work with those prestigious companies? It, to be honest, it's probably changed over the last six months, or it's probably changed since you've been here. Um, our relationship with these people um, has been good, but it's now gone up to a significant level. And the reason for that is is that we're talking to them more and we've got new innovative stuff to show them. So the cage has probably actually been a catalyst for it. We've now got – they're taking a lot more notice of us than what they used to. 
and uh, we have other innovative things that we're bringing online very soon and uh, uh, to be able to to supply these things to those customers or to be able to, for those customers to be able to have those things, I I think we're all... um, we're just getting a much better relationship with each other and, and it's, it's been a, a lot healthier than what it has been in the past. Yeah, great. Well said. What's Play Hard Sports' future look like? <clears throat> um, I see Play Hard Sports being as much an international company than it is um, an Australian customer-based company. Uh, we have a lot of prospects in Europe. Uh, over the next few years, uh, we'll be building on that. Um we hope to move from our current factory. We'd like to set up a new factory with our lean uh, manufacturing processes and, and really just to be able to to make products like our tennis posts, for example. Uh, we look like selling them into the States. So that means a completely new uh, production method uh, and it gives us an opportunity to do something in volume and, and just looking after the Australian market alone, you just don't get the opportunity to do things in volume. So you therefore don't do the the, the uh, cost-efficient setups, etc. So you're at a bit, bit, a bit of a disadvantage. So we're having uh, international customers like uh, uh, court builders in the US and a US tennis wholesaler. We're then able to do a setup. We're able to do a run of 500 posts. So we can then get economy to scale, which we haven't had in the past. Great. Might take this time to. Um Maybe discuss and thank some of the people around you that's been mm. around for a long time. Um, obviously, Red Miller um, and uh, the staff you've got. You want to m- mention some of those? Uh, uh, certainly. So, look, to be honest, um, this whole journey is actually a partnership. So, so if I if I had have uh, come up with this ring and then uh, my wife had, had objected to the time I'm spending on it, um, it, it just wouldn't work. So Rad has been a fantastic, not only advocate, she's helped in it. Uh, she's been packing hockey goals on our back veranda uh, two days before giving birth to our first child. So it, it's, it's a team effort back in the very beginning and it's a team effort now. And uh, the staff that we've had are joining our journey and we're really proud of the way they pitch in. Uh, we've got a great production manager. Um, Who is that? Uh, Francisco. A bit of international <laughs> flavour. Yeah, international flavour. He's, he's a Mexican, um, but he's he's well-versed in uh, lean manufacturing and, and he's been into Samsung and some of the major, uh, major companies. So he's really bringing with him uh, bigger pictures than, than what we, we currently are and, and that's what we need. And now um, having employed yourself, Steve, which has been a... A huge plus. Uh, this is really going to take us to another level altogether. Yep. And it's really that side of the business that has lacked, and uh, I, I, I can't see a limit to where we're going to go at the moment. And which is great. That's good. And obviously, everyone that calls in at the front desk, they mm. obviously get your daughter Tammy. She's very <laughs> fantastic. She's the front of the business, mm. and uh, she's doing a great job. So let's um, maybe speak she, to her. Uh, yes, she is. Uh, she's. She's she's certainly learning the ropes, um, but she's got a very good phone manner. Uh, she's welcoming of people, and she's a great um, first contact for our customers. Uh, we've had my son working in the business for five years, but he's now decided to defect to England. I don't know why, um, <clears throat> but he 
went out on on installations. Uh, he's been involved in uh, scheduling, and he he's really keen to probably come back for a for a period and help grow the business more because he's learning more of the accounting side of things. So um, really, the, the family has been involved in it. Um, it's, it's just really the support from everyone, I think. And, and I think having new products coming online, it gives everyone energy and, and uh, things to look forward to the future. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think we're just very lucky with um, who we have here. Great. Yeah, it's a great place to work. Okay, Trev, if you, if you can go back in time and place a phone call to yourself at a young 20, what advice would you give a young Trevor Bowman? I'm not sure he'd listen to any advice, to be honest. Um, <clears throat> gee whiz. Um, well, I've generally sort of considered to be the black sheep of the family who couldn't settle down, you know, hasn't got a steady job, you know. Um, I, I, I think, think you're that, making them proud. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I, I think back then it was it was hard to sort of work out what you really wanted in life, and, and I'm really not sure what the heck I'd tell tell the guy. But um, you know, you just got to keep plugging forward, and you, you'll end up finding your way. And I think probably later in life, I've probably found my way in life in the last few years than I have in the beginning. So, well done. We thank you so much for your time, Trevor. We wish you well. And I believe it's going to be a fantastic future for Playhard Sports Equipment. Great talk to you, Steve. Thank you.